Hello and welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, ASRA Wrap. Uh, I'm your host, Raj Gupta. I'm an associate professor of anesthesiology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Eric Schwenk, uh, associate professor at, of anesthesiology at Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. How are you, Eric? How are you enjoying your summer? Um, it's excellent. Just trying to beat the heat. Beat the heat everywhere, I think. Uh, so hopefully your power doesn't go out as it has been in the Northeast, but uh, and we can make it through this recording. So um, before I get to our guest today, I want to tell you about a few announcements coming up uh, for ASRA. First off is the fall pain meeting. That's going to be in New Orleans, Louisiana, November 14th through the 16th, and that registration is already open. Uh, specifically, a couple of deadlines to remember. The abstract deadline is coming up September 4th. It's at 5 p.m. Eastern time, so make sure you get your abstracts in. We have had uh, a record number of abstracts at all the meetings in the last few years, so you want to make sure you get yours in on time. And then the early bird registration, that's the discounted registration fee, ends on October 2nd. You can register all the way up to the meeting date, but if you want to get in early and get that uh, cheaper rate, get it in by October 2nd. Book your room early. Um, there's a block of rooms that are discounted for the meeting, so you want to make sure that you're staying at the hotel where the meeting is and be part of all the activities. Book your room now so that you don't miss out on that block. Another announcement is Eric and I are uh, associate editors for social media for the Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine Journal, and we have been ramping up our Twitter activity at, uh, if you follow the Twitter username, at R-A-P-M online, and we are putting content on there on a regular basis, uh, much more than we've ever had before, and I want you to go on there, follow that uh, hashtag, at R-A-P-M online. Uh, there used to be an old one that said editor. We're not using that one anymore, so make sure you follow this one. And uh, we're going to be on Facebook here soon, too, so just keep listening out for our uh, feed on Facebook. The Azra News Podcast. This is from the Azra Newsletter where they put into audio format their news content. Uh, I think it's fantastic. It comes out even more regularly than we do. And so I highly encourage you to go onto your podcast reader, subscribe to the Azra News Podcast, and make sure you're listening to all those wonderful bits of information. Those are short segments, five, ten minutes, easy to digest. It's a great thing to listen to. Another new thing that Azra is doing, they have this new online community called Azra Connect. This is a fantastic way to interact with your fellow Azra members in a private, enclosed, password-protected uh, chat community. And there's been so much conversation already on that community about things, about advice on how to do things, questions about how other people practice, and just trying to find out uh, assistance and guidance from experts in the field. So if you are an Azra member, you have access to that Azra Connect website. Make sure you go to the Azra webpage, find the Azra Connect link, and sign up for that service. I think it's fantastic. We've been already interacting with a bunch of people on there, and I think you uh, should check it out. Uh, last little tidbit of information. So this podcast has some new music on it, and I want to thank Eric and his band, The Preps. Uh, they've just been recording some new music. So the intro and outro music for this podcast is going to be brand new starting this episode. So Eric, thanks to you guys for sharing that music with us on this podcast and sharing it with all our listeners. Our pleasure. 
And uh, so I want to get to the topic of today, and this comes out of the special interest group from ASRA called the Persistent Postoperative Pain Special Interest Group. This is a relatively new group, and um, they're they're working on how to deal with this epidemic, almost a problem of uh, postoperative pain that lasts for a long time and becomes almost chronic pain in many patients, and probably at a higher rate than we've given it credit for. And specifically, what we're going to talk about is the role of the transitional pain service in handling these patients. Not quite acute pain, not quite yet chronic pain. Where do they fit in the middle? And we have two guests with us that are um, going to talk to us about this. First is Hesham El-Sharkawi. He's an associate professor at Case Western University and staff at the Cleveland Clinic. He's um, actually gone back uh, and started a chronic pain fellowship. Uh, so after years of practice, he's decided he needs to learn more. Hesham, how are you? Yeah, how are you doing, Rich? Thank you very much for the invitation and the introduction. Um, I'm looking forward for the discussion. And um, our other guest today is Padma Glur, who's a professor of anesthesiology and population health. She's the executive vice chair of operations and performance um, in the Duke Anesthesiology Program in Durham, North Carolina, and uh, has really had her own personal experiences building and maintaining a transitional pain service. Padma, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, looking forward to the discussion. So actually, Padma, I'll start with you uh, at the beginning of our topic here. So transitional pain service, uh, I, I mentioned the need for such a thing with the um, uh, existence of this persistent postoperative pain. Can you tell us a little bit about how big a problem this is and why we should put all this effort into managing it? I mean, persistent Post-surgical pain is a huge problem. I mean, the estimates on how often this is affecting the quality of life of our patients ranges anywhere from, you know, uh, one in three patients to some people going so far as to say one in two patients actually complain of some form of persistent discomfort. Uh, the population that is most affected, of course, is, are those that have moderate to severe persistent post-surgical pain. And we think the impact of this is uh, far and wide, and can, there must be significant efforts to try to optimize the care of these patients and to make it um, a more um, palatable recovery, make sure that they actually uh, you know, gain the quality of life that they're all seeking when they undergo these surgical procedures. Cool. Uh, Padma, this is Eric. Um, I understand you have been kind of uh, leading the effort at Duke to get your transitional pain service going. I was just uh, wondering if you could maybe share some of the details and the kind of things you guys talked about when you were getting it off the ground and, and, and what kind of what you had to do to convince the, you know, to convince department and hospital leadership, because it seems like that's a big barrier when, uh, when I talk to other people about what, you know, why don't we have a transitional pain service? It's like, well, convincing the, people that uh, are in charge of the money is always the, the issue. So I was wondering if you could maybe speak a few words about that part. Sure, absolutely. I think, you know, the key thing for us as we started to think about this gap and this need was to identify the burning platform. Like, where are the gaps? What are the, what are the issues we are trying to address? And the two, uh, you know, striking uh, gaps that we, I think, like, can all relate to is that poorly optimized patient who the first time you realize that they're not going, you know, that 
nothing's not enough has been done or they're not doing well is usually in the recovery area where you uh, get this patient who's doing very poorly, go ahead, go, you know, interact with this patient and realize just you know, glancing through the charts that, wow, there were things that could have been done that could have uh, prevented this situation where we're dealing with intractable pain in this patient, you know, immediately after surgery and persisting after that. The second big gap that we um, can all identify with is the post-discharge gap in care. So, you know, most, most places have services that will optimize, you know, take care of the patient while they're inpatient, get them, get them stabilized as much as possible, and then go ahead and discharge the patient. Is the patient ready for discharge? Absolutely. They do not need acute care anymore. However, for a portion of these patients, they are not uh, in their, you know, baseline status when they're being discharged. They're in a bit of a subacute phase. And that subacute phase is that transitional state that they're in is what needs to be addressed because otherwise it's a bit of a cliff drop because what happens is we discharge these patients. They look great when they're being discharged, but once they go home, they have to cope with, you know, um, they don't have quite the support that an acute care setting provides. Their recovery is a little bit more challenged in many cases. And when they go and they complain of this, you know, intractable pain, the resources they have is maybe to go back to their surgeon who feels ill-equipped, you know, they look at it and they say the surgery's gone really great, not sure why you are in this state, you know, in this persistent pain state, and they feel ill-equipped to deal with it. Uh, primary care physicians feel ill-equipped to deal with the subacute uh, period. Very honestly, chronic pain clinics, which have been designed more traditionally, equally find it hard to uh, accommodate that subacute phase that these patients are in. And so identifying both of the both of these areas as, uh, as gaps and, you know, how, how do we support that these exist? Well, we were fortunate enough to start with data. We, we went ahead and we looked at our population as they came in. We looked at, you know, what the characteristics were, were they, you know, how many of them were pain patients, i.e. Um, had complaints of pain or were on opioids to treat pain, for instance, were considered more of the higher risk patients. And we followed them through their course of recovery, and this is a live dashboard we have, so we monitor all our 40,000 surgeries in this manner, which is what are they coming in on, what are their pain uh, scores like, and what happens to them afterwards in terms of you know outcomes of interest, uh, like length of stay. We look at readmission rates. We look at you know 30-day emergency room visits, patient satisfaction, you know harm rates, uh, medic- you know especially medication-related harm. And we follow all of this uh, for these patients, and we could clearly identify that there was a subset of population that was doing very poorly indeed. And most of them were patients who had either pre-existing pain or were on opioid therapy for pain. Um, And we could substantiate that the two gaps were real and they were causing, uh, you know, definitely uh, causing or contributing to the uh, worst outcomes for this population. So that's, you know, to answer your question of, well, how do you convince people that this is important? As we move towards, you know, the question of value-based care, where it is, um, you know, cost is a factor, um, the best way to do that when you're talking to your department or you're talking to your administration is to, is to frame the burning platform, to show them with data that, hey, we have this gap, this is what it's resulting in. These are the poor outcomes, and these poor outcomes have all got fiscal consequences that are easy to substantiate. So 
that's how we presented it to our group. And uh, they looked at it and said, that's great. Well, then next step is, what's your solution? What are you going to do about it? And, you know, different places have approached this different ways. Um, if, you, if you shy away from the problem in terms of, wow, this is going to be a big ticket item, let's maybe deal with preoperative optimization or let's just do the postoperative part of this, we're never going to quite get the episode of care. And so we, we really made a case to say this is, you know, from beginning to finish, we've got to be walking with these patients. We've got to get them, get to them from decision to surgery. We've got to optimize them for the surgical episode, follow them in patient as necessary. And then really we made a commitment by saying that we need to follow them for up to 90 days after surgery. And you may well ask why we drew the line at 90 days. The reason for the 90 days was that our, it's our belief that the subacute period can be justified for about 90 days. Most of us agree that after 90 days, the pain is now in more in a persistent chronic state. And those patients at that stage are probably better managed if there still is ongoing pain at that stage, better managed in a chronic pain setting, which is very um, well suited to take care of them um, at that time. So that was our design. We, we went to our uh, administration with it, uh, clearly stating, of course, that this kind of work, which is optimization and post-discharge um, care, um, does not have a, a robust funding mechanism or a reimbursement mechanism. However, um, the traditional fee-for-service schedules that we deal with uh, currently do cover these expenses to some extent. And so we made a business case for it using that model i.e., you've got the value proposition here, which is if we take care of these patients, we are preventing um, these poor outcomes, which are both short, mid, and long-term. And this is what we as a health system uh, can contribute to our population and you know, ensure their well-being. So that's really the approach we took uh, with our, uh, both at the departmental level and at the institutional level. At the departmental level, really, we, you know, what we said is as, Ours in the Department of Anesthesia, we said, you know, as anesthesiologists, we have to step up and be the perioperative physicians, you know, we are meant to be uh, because we have that expertise of where we can contribute both to optimizing the patient before surgery and also supporting that subacute phase, which traditional outpatient entities are not currently um, designed to take on or um, at least cannot contribute as well as we could in those settings. So that's really the, um, the argument we made at the departmental level and at the institutional level. As I said, we spoke primarily to the fact that we have a problem. You can see here, we can show you with the data that these patients are not doing well. Uh, the readmission rates were higher in that population, emergency room visits, in, you know, uh, patient satisfaction, all the outcome metrics that you could, uh, you know, that are of interest as we define ourselves as a quality health system are being affected, and um, with a commitment to excellence, we really need to address them. Uh, awesome, um, pardon me. You kind of you kind of hinted at this a little bit, but for um, for other people that are maybe in the process of trying to do a similar thing to what you have, um, did you you know you presented some data, I guess, to your administration with readmission rates and the overall trend towards higher costs? Did you have specific dollar amounts at hand or did you just have sort of this is the problem we know that it costs more money and and go about it that way because I, I wonder if some people might be intimidated by the idea of having to have 
you know, the dollar calculations kind of worked out ahead of time. You don't, you know, you do not need the um, exact dollar calculations by any means. I mean, there's literature out there that gives you the commonplace cost of a readmission. You know, CMS for that matter can, you know, is happy to share that kind of information, not specific to your institution, but more generally. So you, you could do that to kind of cost model it. But very, very honestly, most institutions are very facile and know what their readmissions cost them. They know what their, uh, you know, patient satisfaction scores cost them and just the overall impact of, um, of, these, uh, of these outcomes. So as, as much as we can make a case for the actual outcomes, you usually have a strong enough case that you do not need to get quite into the, um, the dollar amounts with your institutional leadership at any rate. And should you need to, should you need to you know, um, uh, make any kind of a case like that, you can use the more general numbers that are available out there on what these things cost. Uh, that's great, Badema. Thank you very much for the great detailed explanation. Um, so, I mean, if you can also like discuss with us, like what obstacle uh, that you have, like continuation uh, and maintaining the service, staffing-wise and experience-wise of of the team that you need, um, and how financially you will able to maintain the staffing model um, uh, to move forward. Thanks for that question. That's actually really the key question. I'll tell you, it was easier to convince the institution and the department that this was something needed to, that needed to be done than finding the right people to actually do it. Because one, one of the challenges we face is that the um, breadth of um, responsibility and ownership that we as practitioners would need to take is not something that is um, you know, standard right now. And so convincing your colleagues bringing, you know, building that team uh, from your physician anesthesiologist to potentially mid-level practitioners or nurse support that you need um, is really key uh, to, you know, to making this work because you need that seamless level of, you know, optimization, inpatient support and uh, post-discharge um, care. Uh, ideally, it would be the same team. Now, please note, I'm not saying the same person has to follow the patient, but the same team following that entire episode is ideal because you then don't have the usual uh, gaps that handoffs bring on. Now, for instance, if you have one team that optimizes uh, and another team that follows inpatient and a third team that, you know, or place that they have to go to for post-discharge care, you, you, you have to build a lot of infrastructure to make that seamless in terms of communications and handoffs, and it's, and it's harder. So, one of the challenges we faced was in um, identifying the right team to, you know, to expand that. Should you ask your chronic pain clinic colleagues to staff the, you know, preoperative clinic and the postoperative care, um, and and then just have a separate inpatient service, or should you ask your pre-admission testing, you know, uh, clinic colleagues to take on the optimization and uh, post-discharge care? And, you know, versus expanding the scope of, say, the inpatient providers who are very comfortable taking care of these patients and should they be the ones, uh, you know, doing an inpatient, outpatient kind of a stretch for this episode and providing that preoperative optimization and post-discharge. We went with the inpatient team. I believe they are the strongest in terms of being able to take care 
very comfortable because they're taking care of them in an acute care setting to then continue that care into the subacute and equally comfortable optimizing because they know what they faced when these patients come in and patient and are not optimized. And for the from the patient perspective, they love it. They love the fact that they meet these providers before that these are the providers because there's a lot of anxiety in pain patients um, that they're not going to do well as well, you know, and to know that the, there's a team that not only just, it's not just a meet and greet, but actually works with them to get them in the best shape possible for the surgery. And it's the same team that follows them in-house and post-discharge really increases their uh, confidence in the therapeutic relationships, you know, that are developed. Um, and so we chose the inpatient, you know, our inpatient pain team to expand their services. To be more specific in terms of, you know, what what is our staffing model, uh, we basically did need space, a dedicated outpatient space, and that's uh, one clinic that is a hospital-based clinic for us, but could be a, you know, office-based clinic, any, any you know, anywhere else as well. And uh, we staff it with the same uh, faculty. Uh, initially, we started this with just faculty physicians, like our physician, fac- uh, physician anesthesiologist, who would see patients preoperatively. Uh, I, you know, on average, we see them about 30 days before surgery and optimize them. Um, and then, you know, we are the, we are the folks who uh, staff the inpatient service as well and then see them after discharge as well for up to 90 days. Um, now, you know, our clinics uh, and this episode of care optimization has been going on for two years. We actually have also incorporated our, the mid-level practitioners that we have on the inpatient service have started to come in. To those settings as well, and, and um, you know, work with our patients. Um, and this is really, uh, I think, has been the strength of the model is the continuity of care uh, that the patient receives throughout that episode, um, per se. Training folks up is not easy. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I can tell you that when we first started, when we say optimization, it sounds great. You know, and we do believe strongly in personalized uh, plans for all our patients. However, if you really want to optimize, there's anything from, you know, 14 to 18, um, you know, things that you can optimize. And we used to, in the beginning, try to do everything and quickly realize that most people find it hard to change or optimize that many things or to be successful with that many factors being changed. Uh, by virtue of, you know, patient surveys, the ones seeing the patients who were succeeding and asking them, what aspects of the recommendations made were they most easily able to comply with and which they felt had you know, lasting effect. We were able to tone it down to about four areas of focus that we now use to optimize these patients. But this was an iterative process and we had to train, our, you know, our faculty had to learn a, on the fly and now we have to train our mid-levels to focus on these four aspects and ensure their standardization and consistency in what we're optimizing with, you know, with, with each of our patients. Um, and I'm happy to elaborate, you know, further along if that's of interest, what we, what we specifically do. But those were some of the challenges is just training up, your, get, you know, which team, training up the faculty, et cetera, and getting the buy-in, um, you know, on the need for consistency um, in the principles we've agreed on and working with our patients. The other challenge was, you know, communication with uh, outside providers, you know, just our current system makes it very, very challenging to have time to speak to, you know, referring physicians, to speak to our surgical colleagues, 
And if the patient happens to have pain care providers outside, et cetera, and you're just reaching them, communicating with them. So it's always easy to just write a note and send it to folks. But if you truly want to optimize and truly want to create care plans around these patients who are usually um, complex, it is extremely important to pick up the phone and have that communication, set up those communication, you know, routes of communication that are very helpful. Initially, our faculty physician had to, physicians had to do this on their own. It was a real commitment on our part to just, you know, just make that commitment, find the time, and make sure we were communicating on each patient with, with um, most members of their team. Uh, we now, at this stage, have actually incorporated a um, social workers into our uh, our team, and they are really have been uh, amazing in helping us with that care coordination and communication with the patient's team, but additional value of having the social workers is also um, from the case management, care coordination, uh, you know, social support uh, that they can provide um, for our patients as well. So uh, these were some of the more, I'd say, top-level global challenges that we, um, we felt uh, needed the most work. Padma, I'm going to uh, reference a article that Hesham shared with us. Um, this was an article from the Journal of Pain Research in 2015 uh, about Toronto's experience with a transitional pain service. And uh, this ties in with a couple of things that you said, and I hope you can elaborate on this. Uh, part of the purpose of a transitional pain service is recognizing that pain is often a very complex experience for patients. Um, there is a variety of risk factors for developing chronic post-surgical pain, and then the experience of pain is also multifactorial. That's both physical, uh, mental, psychological, um, and uh, med, uh, uh, pharmaceutical uh, in many of these cases. And um, in this group in Toronto, they incorporated a very diverse team of anesthesiologists, psychologists, nurse practitioners, physical therapists, palliative, expert, uh, palliative care specialists, exercise physiologists, um, uh, social workers, care coordinators, those kinds of things. Um, have you guys thought about what, ch- I know you've mentioned it in brief, and maybe you can tie on some of the specific four that you were mentioning, which of those complex factors do you start uh, engaging, and then who do you have other than your faculty anesthesiologists and your social workers to uh, actually act on those? And the two in particular I'm really interested in finding out about is psychologists and the physical therapists and exercise physiologists, how much of uh of that are prescriptive in your pain clinic? So um, great points. And we are also a multidisciplinary team. Uh, We do have um, psychologists that work specifically with us and physical therapists who are pain trained uh, who work with us and we have access to uh, for our patients. We also have nutritionists at the other area, excuse me, that we found extremely important and uh, to focus on. Additionally, we have some complementary non-pharmacological practitioners as well. For instance, acupuncture uh, slash acupressure. We have uh, massage um, therapists, and we have access to music therapists as well. Uh, should, you know, depending on what the patients need and what they need to be kind of um, optimized on early, and then more importantly, even afterwards in the post-discharge uh, period. So we do have access to all these providers. Excuse me. Uh, speaking to the challenges, one of the things that we found was um, extremely challenging for our patients. You know, Duke uh, Duke is a regional center, and we attract patients from you know 
three to four states away, for that matter, for care at our institution. Uh, and a good number of patients travel a good distance to, uh, to get their procedures done at Duke. And when you have that kind of a population, which is close to about 40% of our, our, our patients, you know, have a travel time of four hours or greater to come to us, having them take on uh, multiple appointments, you know, with our physical therapists or our, um, uh, you know, psychologists, et cetera, we found that, uh, initially found that the compliance rate was, was low. They'd love to come see us, but they wouldn't follow through on the other treatment plans um, quite as, uh, quite as uh, robustly as they did uh, in coming to see us uh, uh, at appointments, et cetera. And coordinating those appointments or trying to say that just come in, you know, we'll, we'll put all the appointments on the day that uh, you come to see us. The challenges with psychologists or physical therapists, it's not a, you know, once every few weeks kind of an appointment. They need to see them more frequently to really have an effect on them. So what we have developed and which has really served as well is that we do have um, a, not quite a teleprogram, but, you know, there are home um, strategies, online strategies or home strategies for just about everything that we do so that we can offer that as an alternative for those patients that find it hard to come in physically for these appointments multiple times. So, for instance, uh, our psychologists, they, um, uh, they do a lot of CBT, but also DBT. We found more help with DBT with our uh, with our population. And that's one of the reasons actually that the social workers got incorporated into our program. They actually see patients in our clinic with us at the time. And it's just an additional 15 minutes to a half hour that they'll spend just introducing themselves, getting connected. And then they figure out quickly if the patient is somebody, uh, you know, who can either uh, be managed remotely if they can, that's offered to them. If they can't be offered remotely, then we've developed a network of, you know, um, other practitioners in the state and out of state that we connect with so that these therapies can be offered to them uh, closer to home to improve the compliance and, and you know, and get them, um, get them situated appro- appropriately. So, yes, uh, in short, we do offer all of the uh, ancillary and multidisciplinary services uh, that you've mentioned and a few in addition um, in fact, for, for, for our patient population. We've done most of the connections are physiological, however, and what I mean by that is they're not co-located with us in our space, but are easily accessible, very close to us, and they do give priority to these, uh, uh, you know, it's a perioperative population, so you really need, you, you really don't have time to say your next point will be a few weeks from now. So they do, in, they do give priority to our patients and get them in uh, really, really fast. But in spite of all of that, I must admit that almost 60 to 70% of our population, as far as the behavioral therapies is concerned, as far as um, you know, exercise regimens, et cetera, or prehabilitation is concerned, tend to do it more in their local settings or remotely with us um, than in-house uh, per se. Um, and I'm sorry if I missed another question um, that you had posed. No, no, that's... That's awesome. This is Eric now. We're bouncing back a little bit back and forth here. But um, as I was listening to you, one thing that I thought about was um, the fact that, at least from what you're, uh, from what from what I heard from you, it sounds like you have some inpatient, uh, presumably acute pain uh, physician anesthesiologists who potentially were kind of asked to uh, to get on board and expand the roles. Did you have uh, Did you have some people in that role who, in that former role, who then 
basically started having to see people on a bit of an outpatient basis. And, you know, I'm curious how that, uh, you know, was there any reluctance on that part or, or was that a, a challenge at all getting people who not necessarily weren't trained in chronic pain to uh, be willing to see people as outpatients somewhat? So interesting, our inpatient service has a predominance of chronic pain trained physicians, uh, anesthesiologists. So we do have uh, uh, folks who are um, non-chronic pain trained as well, more regional and acute pain uh, trained uh, anesthesiologists who staff the inpatient pain service. So we do have a mix of both. Um, uh, the, you know, the rule of thirds applies here as well. We had a, a, a group of our physicians were very eager to do this. They've been wanting to do it themselves and were early adopters and, you know, started, in fact, uh, working heavily in uh, in establishing this clinic with us and, and moving it forward. Uh, we had another third who, who were more cautious, but, you know, eager to learn as well and, and uh, you know, willing to, uh, willing to work with it. And there were, there were and are actually a few physicians who are still uh, kind of feeling their way about it. It's not as natural for them to, uh, to take this on because it's a different setting uh, and a different kind of commitment. But pretty much at this stage, we're, you know, we're getting to the stage where the teams have to be seamless because everyone can see the benefits of, well, you know, our outcomes from these, from the, uh, these clinics, our perioperative pain clinic, which is what, you know, our clinic's called is, have been remarkable, especially for the patients we get to optimize before. And so there's a real investment and a desire to, uh, to be a part of this uh, at this time from almost all our faculty. Okay, that's great to hear. So, um, Padma, and we have uh, so much to talk about here, and um, uh, we're probably going to run out of time to do it. Um, I'll ask a brief question about um, if you can give me a quick answer, what kind of results you guys have been getting from this pain service. And then I'm going to direct the second question to Hesham, actually, because I know he's in this interesting place at Cleveland Clinic where he's been practicing acute pain and um, anesthesiology and now going back and doing a chronic pain fellowship with some hope to create this transitional pain service. And I'm curious to hear from his perspective what your answer is tells him about what he needs to do next and how he sees the future at Cleveland Clinic for doing something very similar. So Padma, quickly, do you guys have some uh, results from uh, the last couple of years? Yeah, we do actually. Um, I mean, our, our best results are with the patients we have seen preoperatively. And, uh, the, you know, on average, for instance, um, these patients, the trends have all been very positive. They're improved uh, lengths of stay, but more importantly, there were improved 30-day readmission rates in these patients and improved statistically significant improvement in the 30-day emergency room visits, um, you know, for our population that was seen. And that's in spite of our population. We compared them to a control population of other, you know, pain slash opioid tolerant patients who had surgeries at the same time. And even though our patient population was sicker, like they had a higher case mix index or severity of illness, um, our patients actually had better outcomes. Um, and as I said, statistically significant reduction in emergency room visits. Uh, the readmission rates wasn't st statistically significant, but that's, again, uh, I think just a factor of numbers. As soon as we have more patients go through this, uh, we'll see it because the trend is extremely strong and in favor. Um, probably, though, the, and the patient satisfaction was the other 
you know, um, happy surprise, our patients were actually more satisfied uh, than the average patients who underwent surgery and had some pre-existing pain conditions or needed, you know, were on chronic opioids. But probably the most remarkable thing for us was that, uh, you know, results that we're seeing is the fact that on average, you know, the oral morphine equivalence of the patients who went through the perioperative pain clinic was somewhere in the 200 range, 200 milligrams of oral morphine equivalence. Um, and, you know, as, as uh, can be expected, we did work with them to optimize them. So they did go down on those doses before surgery. There was about an 18 to 20% reduction in their opioid use prior to surgery on average. Uh, and then, as expected, at discharge, that number was much higher. You know, they, they, they were on higher doses. But what was most remarkable was that uh, was the, were the results at 90 days. As you know, most people who are on chronic opioids who undergo surgery, we think it's a great outcome if they would get back to their home dose of medications at around 90 days, or you know at least come come to that amount. We that's what most many guidelines actually out there say is just get them back to their home dose, and you know you've done a good job. Uh, our patients are actually anywhere from 35 to 44% lower than their chronic base, you know, baseline home use that they came in with at 90 days post-discharge. And that to us was really remarkable because that's really moving the needle in reducing both, uh, you know, the opioid use, but also the pain state where, you know, they were, they were doing better from a pain perspective than they had a presentation from the, you know, even with their chronic uh, pain uh, coping and, what we wanted to know was, well, what, what did this? Because our, while our focus was definitely towards optimizing them and making sure that their recovery was good, we didn't, uh, you know, invest heavily in trying to say that you had to come down even further on your opioids. What we found was that uh, the engagement with the family and the process that these patients went through, what they told us was three, three of the things that we uh, talked to them about really stayed with them and really helped them actually use even less opioid than they needed to. And they actually felt that their pain scores were better and quality of life was better. So I would say that was the uh, outcome that we found the most um, remarkable. And Hashem, what do you think It's amazing. Uh, yeah, it's amazing results, and, and uh, it's a very complex issue, and, and to solve it, you need a complex solution, uh, multidisciplinary, and it's not an easy way um, and I, I think it's not a one way. Uh, each institution have to customize it according to the resources and the, the availability of the staffing. Uh, but one last question to to Padma. I mean, how, how do you see the future of of this model, and how how we can move forward with this and increase the adoption, and, and educate all the practitioner and also our leaders in the importance of this uh, uh, kind of a service. You know, to quote, uh, quote a colleague of mine, you win by winning. You know, it's, it's once you can show the results, once you can show that this works, it's easier and easier for other institutions to adopt it. Uh, I can tell you that, we, you know, we've been working with quite a few different institutions, MD Anderson, with, uh, uh, you know, in, in Virginia and uh, Colorado, et cetera, to, you know, where there's been increasing interest in collaborating with them, sharing our results with you guys as well, Asham, to some extent. Uh, you know, in trying to help them formulate their own services. It, it's not very hard to do when you make a commitment. Uh, and when you can see that the results exist, your institution is more than happy to support it. I can tell you right now that we started with a clinic that uh, we opened, you know, three days a week. And my last meeting with, our, with you know, our hospital leadership 
their first question was, when are you expanding this to five days a week and what do you need to do it? Um, so it's really the results, you know, as you start to show that the patients are doing better, um, the support is much easier, much easier to get. And the investment and engagement, our surgeons are our biggest, uh, you know, uh, biggest allies. Uh, they uh, absolutely, their you know, biggest request every year to the institution is expansion of these services because they found them so helpful. So really finding those partners, showing them that, you know, together we can make this kind of a difference will, will be the answer. And I do see, I, I think this is going to be standard of care moving forward because um, it's just the right way to do things. Well, I think this has been a fantastic discussion about an incre- incredibly important topic. I think the reality is is that anesthesiologists are perfectly suited for this kind of work, although we we may not always be comfortable or perfectly experienced in it. I think we're going to have to be, and I see that in our own trainees, they are more well-suited and well-prepared for this moving forward, and I think that's going to be good for our profession and good for our patient care as well. I want to thank all of you guys for joining. For um, those of you listening, we're actually recording this on a Sunday night at 10 o'clock at night, so these guys have taken time out uh, of very busy schedules and personal life to uh, record this topic with you guys, and I really appreciate all of you being on the show and having this important discussion. I want to reemphasize one thing. The special interest group at ASRA for post-operative, persistent post-operative pain is the place to go to if you want to be part of this discussion or if you just want to learn from these people who are doing uh, this expert uh, cutting-edge work. So I highly encourage you to join that group. Uh, you can just volunteer yourself. Nobody has to nominate you. Just go onto the ASRA website, look up that special interest group, and be a part of this conversation moving forward. It's really exciting, and I think it's going to be incredibly important. So once again, thank you to all of you, and uh, have a wonderful night. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Badama, for being with us. And we learned a lot from you, and we really appreciate your experience. Oh, thank you, guys. It was great talking to all of you, and look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Great. Thank you, guys.